Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Welcome, everybody. This is Ali Milani on Fubar Radio for another episode of Politics Uncensored. I am delighted to be joined by Patsy Stevenson this week. Uh, you may know Patsy, who from uh, Clapham Common Vigil, uh, she was arrested during the Sarah Everard. Um, vigil uh, after the tragic murder of Sarah Everard um, and a picture of her being restrained and handcuffed by the police became a symbol of the excessive force used during this event and she's gone on to be a a fierce and active women's rights uh, activist and campaigner uh, particularly against violence against women. Patsy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Look, this is an a really difficult episode, I think, for us, but a really, really important episode for us uh, this week. Uh, we're going to be joined uh, by uh, a number of guests uh, from John Pegram, a founding member of Bristol Copwatch, uh, Dawn Butler, Labour MP for Brent Central, and Ian Donnelly, a former police officer and author. And this week, the theme of the show we're going to talk about is policing uh, and uh, institutional racism and sexism within the police. But before we dive into that specific topic, we're going to talk about this week's unwrapped news items. And up first, we have the story of the Home Secretary, who is expected to be given powers to ignore attempts by European judges to halt migration deportations from the UK. The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is set to make changes to the illegal migration bill in order to appease the right of the Conservative Party. Now, this has been making the news today largely because the criticism of Rishi Sunak is he is pandering to the far right of the Conservative Party. He is pandering to the likes of Suella Braverman by giving her these powers to ignore attempts by European judges to halt um, uh, being these powers to halt migration deportations from the UK. Patsy, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's another political tactic, isn't it? Like Rishi Sunak said, um, I'm pretty sure he said that the the people of Britain, that's their top concern is is migration um, to the UK. But actually, it's not. It's quite low on the list at the moment. It's cost of living, as it would be for many people. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I just think it's just another tactic, but also really, really dangerous. This seems to be all they have in their quiver. Every week we come on the show and there is a new story about Rishi or a member of his cabinet attacking the most vulnerable people in our society. We've seen it with migrants, we've seen it with refugees, we've seen it with trans people, we've seen it with women. There seems to be an active tactic at Conservative HQ on around these culture wars and attacking the most vulnerable people. Do you think this is an election ploy? I mean, I think so, but it's it's one of those things where if you're super far right, you get more votes on that side. Do you know I mean, so if he's staying in between, it's just not going to get him enough votes. I think a lot of people, um, you know, people that are watching a lot of the media that's out nowadays as well, um, very much panders to that sort of polarised, you know, form of hate, um, especially against trans people, against refugees. And I see it every day when I, when I go on certain TV channels, for example. I've seen it, yeah. I've heard it. Um, and a lot of people feed into that. And I think it's, it's you know, fear-mongering TV. It's just, it's just yeah. ridiculous. And that's what the... Well, it's an attempt to manufacture into. outrage, isn't it? And yeah. I think they realise that from a policy perspective, they're struggling. Um, they're not making the arguments to the public in the way that they would like on their record, having been in power for 13 years. And the only way that they seem to be able to differentiate themselves in the polls is on these culture war issues um and so how worrying do you think it is these powers that might be able to be given to suella braverman to the home secretary to ignore european human human rights courts because i mean suella braverman is notorious for her um now sort of infamous attacks on migrants and refugees the boats and being stopped the boats being their main main campaigns (laughs) there was that picture i don't know if you saw of her in rwanda laughing and that Mm. that kind of that kind of went viral so how worrying do you think it is that someone who so many people have so many concerns about as it is being given further powers i mean i felt the same about pretty patel if i'm honest um but that's the thing is that you know, I don't know how these types of people are in positions of power. You know, like Rishi Sunak, he's a billionaire. Do you know what I mean? And he's, and he's running a country that doesn't... A lot of people go into food banks at the moment. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. So for me, yeah, seeing her, the picture of her in Rwanda, I mean, you know, yeah, maybe it was caught on a, an off moment or whatever, but 
the things that she said, things that are coming from her mouth, are yeah. completely dangerous, in yeah. my opinion. They've said about, as well, um, I saw that they said about um, people who come over are not on boats are not going to be, not going to have access to um, the modern slavery laws. Mm-hmm. Which means that if, if sex slaves are brought over, women are brought over, and children are brought over, they have no protection. Well, he's, yeah, Rishi Sunak has made his... He's really set his stall as as stopping the boats being his main his main thing, and I think um, it it is an election issue for them, and and it seems to be something that they're differentiating differentiating themselves on, um, and uh, these attacks are going to just keep coming. the The other piece of news that that Rishi has to deal with now <coughs> is the allegations of bullying uh, surrounding Dominic Robb. So Dominic Robb's future as deputy prime minister currently hangs in the balance as a report into allegations of bullying is being handed to the Prime Minister today. Uh, The Justice Secretary has faced multiple complaints over his dealings with civil servants. This has been a a talking point in Westminster for a long time. That report has finally hit the hands of the Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak in the past has said that he will wait until the outcome of this report to take any, any, any if any actions. If Dominic Rob is found to have bullied civil servants. Do you think he should remain as deputy prime minister? No, it, I mean the thing is, it does depend on like what scale. But bullying is bullying, um, and I think if you're in a position of power, I just think bullying is unacceptable in any which way. So for someone to be like I said before, these people are at the top. They're running our country. Do we really want to bully as the deputy? And this is the thing. I mean, we, we, we previously had it on Pretty Patel. Um, there was reports uh, about Pretty Patel in her time um, in, in the cabinet. And it goes to that, what do we expect of our public figures? Do we expect the highest standards or uh, is it a race to the bottom? And unfortunately, it seems to be a race to the bottom. So lastly, on this week's Unwrapped, we have the head of the Police Federation, um, has who has personally accepted the findings of Baroness Casey's report into institutional racism, misogyny and homophobia in the Met Police. Um, and he becomes the first leader of major police, police, British policing to accept the findings. However, the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police, Stephen Watson, has argued that no police force is institutionally racist and has said the term was at risk of becoming a fluid disruptor. Listen to what he had to say. The problem with the phrase institutional racism is it's also been applied by different people in different contexts uh, across the board. And I'm not sure that the same discipline of interpretation is there. And as a result, it becomes something of a fluid descriptor. Uh, I think it is a little unclear as to what it means, but I do think there is a grave danger of almost reaching for a rigid interpretation of a well-thought-out definition when actually the public will understandably take the view that if you say we're institutionally this, that or the other, that that means as an organisation we either genuinely don't care, we genuinely don't um, find that behaviours of the sort described are somehow inimicable to our values, um, or at best we're just too incompetent to sort it out. Now, I, I think it possible that a police force could be institutionally racist. Um, I just don't think that applies to any of the UK police forces. So, Patsy, there we have Stephen Watson, the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police, in the face of all the reports, of all the evidence, saying that no uh, police force in the UK is institutionally racist uh, and the term is becoming a fluid descriptor, I should say. What would you make of that? I mean, he says, like, oh, if we say this, then that means the public are going to think we're too incompetent to filter it out. You are too incompetent to filter it out, unfortunately. Um, We've seen this time and time again. I was in a video for Led by Donkeys where it showed every single commissioner over the past, like, what, 20 years, saying the exact same things that everyone always says. Oh, we're going to we're going to sort out racism, we're going to sort out misogyny, we're going to root radical reform. It's just a load of rubbish. Yeah, and he's acting like it's this description of the institutional racism, sexism and homophobia that is what's caused the mistrust in the police rather than their countless pieces of evidence, the reports year after year, proving that there is an issue. And so I guess what we're going to talk about on today's show, the general theme of today's show is... What do we do with this? 
right? The, this denial of a problem is surely one of the biggest barriers we have to face. We now have one of the chief constables denying what is proven in report after report. Is this not part of the issue? They're just re- refusing to accept that there's a problem. Yeah, and ironically, the denial is just proving everyone's point. You know, that's what we're trying to say is that they don't care. They keep letting it happen without consequences and it's getting worse and worse. And they're saying, oh, no, we're not. No, we're not. We're not. They they had a chance to be held accountable and to show their hands and say, listen, yeah, this has happened. They only actually did that after loads of public pressure, including the vigil that I went to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, all of this stuff happened. And eventually they've come out with, okay, yeah, I guess. All right, okay, we're racist. What do you mean? It's a known thing in yeah. most communities that they're racist and homophobic and sexist and... And to say that, oh, but the meaning of institutionalised, come on. You're just gaslighting people at this point, you know? Yeah. And look, just for context, uh, for anyone who might not be aware, we can go back as far as 1999 with the McPherson report, which found that the police force is institutionally racist. We've had multiple uh, experts and publications from the United Nations Human Rights Commissions that have raised concerns around structural racism, over-policing and criminalization of people of African descent and other minorities. We've now had the Louise Casey report in 2023, uh, which has found that 12% of women in the Met say that they've been harassed or attacked at work. One third of the women in the Met have experienced racism, that the Met police is guilty of, and I quote, institutional racism, misogyny, and homophobia, that the force has a bullying culture, quote, baked into the system. The report has found that stop and search and use of force uh, of on powers against black people was excessive, and that only 50% of the public had confidence in the Met. And that report by Lewis Casey came out just a few weeks ago. And so in the case, in this, you know, in the face of all of this evidence, the Stephen Watson the Chief Constable for Greater Manchester Police still doesn't think that there's a problem. Patsy, how can we deal with this issue that has been going on for so long <clears throat> if senior people are still denying it's a problem? Well, I mean, I thought it might help to get certain senior people out, but then obviously Cressida Dick resigned and nothing changed again. So, you know, that was through my experience only. But now I've spoken to a lot of um, people that I know about it, a lot of activists as well, and there are activists that have written books about, you know, uh, abolishment of the police and now that's not something that I've ever looked into before but when my friends are talking about it and saying actually this makes a lot of sense or defunding the police it's a scary word for a lot of people but mm-hmm. it does actually make a lot of sense yeah and so look I, I guess the most recent discussions <clears throat> around the police really came about after the tragic murder uh, of Sarah uh, you went to the vigil uh, and you had um, you were arrested and the picture of your arrest was on in every newspaper and I think on the feed of every person in this country's Mm. social media. Do you mind talking to us a little bit about why you went and what you think that has sparked now the conversation around policing and how important that is? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak on bits and pieces because of the legal proceedings against the Met. But, um, you know, my reasonings were a lot like any others where, you know, I've faced sexual harassment and assault and and misogyny my entire life um and it was just one of those moments where you know you you just we all came together as a collective to grieve um unfortunately the the problem with it was that the media um it it was a big problem i think to be honest the reason that my picture went viral is much to do with the fact that i'm white Mm -hmm. and because of the way i look um and a lot of other people who are arrested unlawfully, um, they don't get platforms, they don't get book deals, do you know what I mean? So it's it's one of those things, again, where we see, okay, yeah, I heard about Sarah Everard, but I hadn't heard about Biba Henry or Nicole Smallman. I hadn't heard of any of them because they didn't get as much press. Um, and I think it's really important that, yeah, it did spark a, mo- a movement, a moment, mainly for white women who were like oh this can happen to us as well which it shouldn't have been people should have been listening the whole time that the police police brutality exists also my face should not be used as the face of police brutality because it's just not you know people have been attacked in 
certain communities for years and years and years mm-hmm. and not been listened to yeah. it shouldn't be down to oh this white woman's been arrested we can now talk to her about police brutality I'm not the person to talk to all the time do you know what I mean like yeah. it's I can talk about misogyny in the police but I, th- I think that's, that has been look we, we've spoken about uh, policing on the show before and one of the responses that we've gotten is quite rightly from the black communities that have said listen it is absolutely brilliant that we are finally talking about this issue and we can hopefully do something about it and um, absolutely there is a huge issue of misogyny and sexism um, in the police and that's often you know the intersectionality of Mm. that is that black women often face that at, at higher rates but the reality is that black communities have been facing over policing and institutional racism from the police for decades. Since it started, since yeah. the police started, and do you mean? Yeah. No one has ever said anything. It's always kind of been ignored. It's kind of been um, a taboo subject. I know I've said it on this show previously. In politics, <coughs> it, it's it's something that's not talked about. Politicians are terrified to talk about the police, mm. but it seems like through a combination of different incidents happening, reports happening, and viral moments on social media, we seem to be in a moment of change. Do you think that that's the case, or will this all blow over? I hope so, and I've said this before, that we need to keep up the public pressure. Um, My friend Sophia Smith-Gaylor, she is like uh she's like the trailblazer of news on tiktok for example tiktok gets younger viewers in um of the news of this is what's going on and the more viral it goes the, yeah. the more public pressure there is well what's also happening is people are filming their interactions with the police yeah. so we're seeing it exactly. and i think that has caused massive difference so if you had go, gone back to uh, the mcpherson report in 1999 and the tragic again case of stephen lawrence for example um, in those in that era, people weren't filming their interactions with the police. So you really just relied on the report of the police officers themselves mm-hmm. and then the testimony of the witnesses, which was often either not believed or ignored. Um, and so there seems to be a, uh, a shift in, in public perception because we're seeing it for ourselves. And so... I'm delighted now that, that we're joined by a guest, uh, John Pegram, founding member of Bristol Cop Watch, a grassroots police monitoring organization working towards community safety and police accountability. Uh, John has been involved with anti-racist campaigning for many years and has been monitoring the police since 2018. John, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to have you. We've been talking about this issue of policing on this show uh, for, for a few weeks now. And I guess my first question to you would be, I don't know if you have seen, but the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police, Stephen Watson, has argued that no UK police force is institutionally racist and said that the term was at risk of becoming a fluid descriptor. Now, we, we have already listed a bunch of different examples of reports and evidence that say the contrary. Is it not a serious problem that even now, even after all this, the evidences, all the testimonies, all the reports, there is still one of the leading police officers in this country is still refusing to admit that there's a there's an issue. I would say, yeah, nice. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I would say, yeah, it's most definitely an issue. Even if the police are saying there is there is no problem it's something that we you know we all generally need to sit up and pay attention to um i mean primarily the reason being is it's not just something you know that's obviously an issue just with the metropolitan police it's, it's almost it's almost like a national strategy because then we see you know the great manchester police saying the same thing and even in even in somerset we see him with the police here sarah crew chief constable sarah crew say even though institutional racism well that term has its place it isn't something that applies to the police at present here however out down on the ground or out on the street we see a very different story and also if we go right back to 2017 in particular uh with Abel and Somerset Police they were they were proven to be institutionally racist as an organization following the murder of uh, a Iranian refugee Benjamin Rami it wasn't just them but it was also the council as well so I think in terms of the deflection of you know a statement like that, effectively what you're looking at is the police uh, doing their best to protect themselves and deflect from some of the most serious issues about their organisation. I mean, over the years we haven't seen much progression in terms of um, you know in, in terms of tackling that or taking ownership of it. And I think if we want to see real change, or if the police want to show real change, they need to take ownership of that statement. You know. Yeah, and so. John, 
I'm curious, you, you've been working on this issue a long time. Can you give us a little bit about your first-hand experiences of the police? Because from from what I've read, you've had quite a, f- quite a few interactions. So I think it'd be helpful for, for, you know, we've spoken about data and statistics, and we will speak about plenty of that in the show. But from a human perspective, what has been your relationship with the police during your years of campaigning or even before? things in perspective in terms of my own journey. I was stopped and searched by the police probably from the age of around 16. <laughs> uh, my dad was uh, my, my dad was a black South African guy. He's very sadly passed away in 2021. Um, but my mum's white, and being a mixed race kid in primarily a uh, middle class to working class white community down south, um, I stood out like a sore thumb. Basically, coming back from school, going out with my friends. Um, and the police targeted me for some time, but then I made my mistakes and I got drawn into a cycle. Um, and so I went for a cycle of stop and search and arrests and um, community orders for drugs offences. Um, you know, everybody has got a pass. You know, I made my mistakes and I ended up getting a small, short custodial sentence. I went through all of that, but even before that, I had the police in my life and I was being racially profiled and targeted by them. And my earliest memory of the police as an organisation is when they used to stop and search me for riding on the pavement on yeah. my mountain bike. And I can remember my dad giving me uh, the receipt from the mountain bike and saying, son, just take this, and next time they stop you, just show them the receipt to show it's yours. And also, when I went back through from school one day, there was a, there was a car at the end of the road. The cop said, we're looking for somebody who's been involved in burglaries in the area, and, they, and he said, you fit the description, son. I just need to search you. And I said, what's the description, officer? And he said, he's mixed race. And it's at that point I suddenly realised, because before that point, I thought to myself, well, you know, they're in my life all the time. I wasn't sure what to think, despite the fact that I was being told by friends and my friend's parents, this is this is not good. Yeah, do tell us when this happens. Yeah, this is racism. Yeah. And then I told my dad, and he and he sat me down and he gave me that kind of talk about black people and people of colour and the cops, you know. So I've I've had a I've had a fairly colourful and and kind of myriad, if not negative, experience with the police. And I understand that people respect the police and rely on them. You know, we, we don't as an organisation ever say, um, you know, if, if somebody was to say, it was say two or three cops are causing a problem for me, I get stopped and searched seven times a week, can you help? But I don't have a problem with the police, I think we should respect them. We wouldn't have an issue with that. You know, yeah. we wouldn't ever say to anybody, okay, unless you think, you know, there should be alternatives, it's better kind of thing, you know, so that's yeah, kind I, of my journey. And I just want to talk about the stop and search issue very, very quickly, because it's a conversation I've often had. Um, I was stopped and searched as as a teenager as well, and we were often stopped and searched um, on our way from college when we go out to lunch in the same spot by the same police officers every week. And um, our, it, it seriously impacted our relationship and perception of policing is that something that you experienced so it it shaped our perspectives of the police being adversarial as opposed to a part of the community and it completely eroded trust between young people in our area and the police is that something that you felt in 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 your experience and in your community also I would say there's very little trust in the police these days. I mean, even before the case you were being reported, there was trust that was eroding. And I think if you speak to a lot of youth these days about their their views on the police, they will see them as an oppressor. You know, we, we know people such as Desmond Brown, Desmond said he supports youth that, are, that see the cops as oppressors, but also I've spoken to youth who see the police as nothing but you know, somebody or an organisation that has an issue with them. And my own experiences as well, I can remember going through that cycle of stop and search. Um, I can remember thinking to myself, it gets to a point where you think, if you think this is what I am, if you're going to put me in a box, yeah, and then for a while I was, I was silly enough to think, <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm going to be, you know? I'm going to be what you say I am because, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to prove to you, you know, that I, I can be I can be the, the nastiest and the meanest. And I was never ever, and I was never very good going through you know doing silly making silly mistakes or anything like that you know nothing that i was ever proud of and still you know i still have, have issues forgiving myself for some of the, some of the mistakes that i made but also it creates trauma stop and search is a cycle and when you get caught in the cycle regardless of your your background or the reasons for stops it creates a lot of trauma and a lot of natural kind of distrust of the police as an organization at the end of the day you know if you have an issue 
people call the police. I mean, what, who do you turn to when they when you when you see them as an as an opposing force in your life? Exactly that. Yeah, and that's that's the trouble is that it, it affects all communities, doesn't it? And and you know who do you go to if something happens? Um, I just want to ask you a quick question, John. Like, um, have you seen like a difference in Bristol police force at all since the Casey report? I think since uh, I've, I've, I've been in Bristol now about eleven years or so. Um, I think the police as an organisation haven't really made any significant improvements. There are things they say they're going to do uh, and then what happens at the top or what is said by senior police in senior positions unfortunately doesn't reflect down at street level and that's a very common issue in a lot of different areas of Bristol. The community experience of the police isn't what the police would like you to think it is whereas the police would say we're on an anti-racist drive, we're going to deal with you know sexual violence and serious crimes such as that. Um, you know, more effectively, we're going to investigate properly. The reality of the situation is it is a very, very different experience for a lot of people from many different backgrounds, you know. Uh, and again, it does seem to be, unfortunately, primarily lip service that's coming from senior police. And when we actually sit down in the room with the police, and I've been in meetings with the PCC uh, and borough area commanders, um, and in my own community of St Anne's, we had a meeting last year uh, and we sat down with the police and we spoke to them about RV patrols or armed response vehicle patrols in our in our community, which is a fairly quiet community. There has been some issues, um, but also it's not a kind of a level where you expect to see armed police responding to almost everything. And the police's response in general, I feel, is kind of, it's a very clear detachment from the community. It's almost a level of arrogance yeah. saying, well, this is just what we do. This is who we are as an organisation. You know, we're here for the good of, you know, the city, yeah. we're here for law and order. Where's the actual engagement with the community? Where is the understanding? That's what's lacking. Yeah, and there seems to be, um, unfortunately, again, as there has been in, in previous years, uh, a denial of the problem. John, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you having come on and sharing your experience. That was John Pegram, founding member of Bristol Copwatch, a grassroots police uh, monitoring organization working towards community safety and police accountability. Patsy, look, I mean, that's amazing. When you hear someone saying, my dad told me to keep the receipts of the bike that he had bought so that when I get stopped and searched I can prove that the bike was mine from someone of mixed race heritage that is a pretty powerful indicator of the relationship that minority communities have with the police. Yeah exactly and this is why intersectionality is so important so you know at the moment I hear a lot of women uh, in women's groups say you know stop and search was very scary for them because the police had what they called booty patrols, which was they would find attractive women and stop and search them for the point of touching them up or assaulting them, basically. Um, and so they've said that's very serious. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, black and brown communities have been going through this a lot and they get that as well. But on top of that, they a lot of them have to carry receipts or feel the need to have to carry receipts with them, especially when they go shopping. Even you go into a shop and most of the time, you know, my black friends will get a receipt and I wouldn't even think twice about it. Things like that really shows you it, it is a thing, you know, and that's why it's important for the people that have woken up to it now to really think, okay, yeah, you know, when you see something happening, do you really want to call the police on that person? Because that actually can make it more dangerous for people, you know? Yeah. And someone who has had this experience as well, um, all of her life, uh, but particularly uh, more recently, having been um, pulled over as a member of parliament, was Dawn Butler. I spoke to Dawn Butler, Labour MP for Brent Central, uh, a few weeks ago, arounding her personal experience with the Met Police, and ahead of the Casey report being published, what changes she would like to be see within the police force. The issue of police, minority communities, women, has been hugely in the public discourse ever since, in the last sort of five, six years. Uh, the Sarah Everard case specifically, we've now had recent sort of data showing that trust in the Metropolitan Police in London specifically has fallen drastically. You experienced an incident where you had a stop and search that, that was well publicised, where it was yourself and uh, I think a driver who was a black man, if I'm not mistaken. Now, I'm not particularly interested in the incident itself. What I want, wondered is whether you could talk a little bit about this, this tension around the issue of policing, because it goes to the heart of what we've been talking about in the different experiences and the different worlds that 
people live in this country. One of the best examples is when I went to university, I uh, started to interact with people who didn't come from the kind of backgrounds that I did. And policing was one of the key issues that we used to debate about, because when I grew up, we were afraid of the police, right? We didn't interact. Whereas they were told, if anything goes wrong, the police are your friends. Go and seek police advice. I got the opposite advice from friends, from parents, often from teachers, which was, you know, to fear the police. So what age did you get that advice, Ali? Uh, I think it was teenage years. So it was when we started, um, when I started to come home by myself. So when I was not getting picked up from school, you know, mm. the police, certainly my mum, there, there was an there was an air of fear. Don't interact unless you have to. And then that was, I think, reinforced by our own experiences, stop and searches, which caused huge angst amongst us. Uh, you know, where we were just getting, we, we never got, we never had anything, but we would constantly get stopped and searched. There was no... There was no drive or will from local police forces to do any sort of integration work. Um, it was almost seen as they were the hammer, we were the nail. And <laughs> at the time, you know, I, I was a candidate. And I'll be honest with you, when I stood, I was it was one of the issues I was afraid to talk about because I was scared of the backlash that, that would come. But I don't think that we can address. I don't think it's fair on the police. I don't think it's fair on the communities. I don't think we can address the issue unless we talk about the reality of the fact that there is a huge gap particularly between minority communities and the police. And so I just want your experience, thoughts on that. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have what I call the talk. If you're a person of colour, you, 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 you get given the talk at some stage in your life. Mine was probably, I think as early as about 11, 12, um, where my brother's, gave me advice about the police, which is basically don't be alone with them. Get a message to us as soon as you can. Um, when I started driving, it was look in your rear view mirror if the police drives past you. If they U-turn, know that they're following you and find a safe space to stop. And I think the first time they gave me the advice, I was like 14. I wasn't even driving. And I was thinking, wow. And... Uh, and I think the brutal murder of George Floyd brought a lot of these discussions and trauma back up to the fore, right? Because there were mm-hmm. people who would normally not have taken any of this in because they'd be out going about their daily lives, or all of a sudden stuck in front of the TV having all this content. And they couldn't explain that death away. Do you know what I mean? They couldn't explain why the police were acting in such a brutal way, why somebody else called the police while they were watching the police kill a black man. And so we were having all these conversations with the police. Now, if black people had been listened to about the brutality in the police and about the bad officers in the police, we would have a better police force now. And the fact is they were not. And that is because... It's very much links to uh, parliament and old structures where they're built for a certain group of people who act a certain way and they're not to be questioned. And then these are the kind of outcomes that you get. So um, it's interesting now because you've got the, the police, especially the Met, to have the, the lowest uh, rate of satisfaction at any other time in its history. Women have problems with the police, especially after, as you say, the brutal murder of uh, Sarah Everard. And also the police um, taking pictures of um, Nicole and Bibber and putting it on a WhatsApp group. Women don't feel safe. Black people have never felt safe. Mm-hmm. And you've got gay people who feel that they were not listened to. So you've got different categories of people now who were like, and that's, you know, and that's rightly why the Met are in special measures. But I must say, uh, and I am one to, uh, you know, be critical, but also be fair, you know, and I must say that Cressida Dick, I called for her to resign. Yes. Um, Mark Rowley, He's not done anything for me to call him to resign. 
he's actually, I think, uh, doing a better job than Cresta did. He's listening. He seems to understand. He says, yes, he understands the police are institutionally racist. So... You mentioned that uh, you called on Cresta to Dick to resign, which I thought was incredibly brave, because even then, even as all the pressure had mounted, there was a fear in politics, because there's a consensus across partisan line in politics that you kind of talked about the police as a dangerous area for you politically. So I thought it was really brave that you did that. And now you've spoken about the new commissioner. If he was here, and I'm sure you have actually spoken to him, but if he was sat here, or if you were in a room, a safe room, that nothing would get out, nothing would get in, what is the advice you would give him to clean this mess up? I've told him this to his face. Every single police officer needs to be revetted. Every single one with that exception. And every single police officer needs a psych test. Do you mean they need to, we need to understand that they are psychologically, mentally sound to do the job of policing. Policing, you know, you're taking away people's liberties. You have power to do that. You have the power to stop somebody and search them. You have the power to tell somebody, I am going to strip search you, take all your clothes off, I'm going to strip search you. Those powers shouldn't be given to people who are unstable. And we have too many unstable officers. And they talk about bad apples. But I actually think that I actually think that the Met, and I only know the Met, I don't know other police in other areas, Mm -hmm. but I think the Met is a rotten tree that produces a few good apples. Yeah. Rather than rather than the other way around. Yeah. And I mean there's there's all sorts of I mean we could be here for days citing mm. um examples. But the hope is that we are now in a moment because look, there's a there's a I can imagine you might not say it, others might not say it, but there's an element of frustration because black communities have been saying this stuff, exact stuff, for decades and no one has listened. And now there might be a gap. There might be a a slight light where people are listening and it gives us an opportunity to reform for the better. Um, And so the hope is that this moment can be embraced um, and that there can be reform. So I don't have to tell my kids to avoid, to make sure they say all the right things, to be in fear of of the police so i can give them the same advice my white counterparts gave their kids um i'd love for that to happen right wouldn't we love for that to happen yeah yeah i mean it's it's it, it has always been so contradictory to me um because and i didn't say anything for the longest time but we would be around and and people would talk about the police in terms that i was unfamiliar with <laughs> um, it wasn't my experience um, and I know it wasn't uh, my colleague's experience. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. And uh, I'm sure all the listeners and everyone is looking forward to seeing what you do next. Pleasure. Good luck. And good luck to you. Hopefully I'll see you in Parliament one day. We'll see. Thank you so much. Take Thanks. care. Bye. That was Dawn Butler, Labour MP for Brent Central. You can hear the full interview on foobarradio.com or via podcasting platforms. Uh, I would really suggest that people check out the full interview. It's almost uh, half an hour long, so it's much longer than what we just heard. We discussed a variety of topics, including her early memories as an MP, her experience with racism in politics, uh, including a story where she was mistaken for a cleaner in her early days as, as a member of parliament and writing her new book, A Purposeful Life. Patsy, one of the main things I took away from that interview was uh, one of the most prominent Labour MPs, uh, one of the first black women to ever enter parliament, calling the Metropolitan Police a rotten tree. Yeah, I mean, it just, that I don't know how people can't believe it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, um, I know a lot of, like, people that, people say it to me all the time, even if I'm, like, passing someone about it or, like, talking briefly about it, they're like, yeah, but the police have a hard job to do. They, it's just excuse after excuse after excuse. It's, you know, you can't excuse this stuff. This is something that's genuinely happening, been happening for decades and decades. Listen, understand, process it, and help with the cause. Do you know what I mean? Because things aren't going to get better. They're going to get worse. Okay, so coming up next, we have uh, Ian Donnelly, former police officer and author of Tango, Juliet, Foxtrock. How did it all go wrong for policing? He will be joining us after this. FUBAR Radio presents Callum McSwiggan 
It's the amazing Abigailia Shimon. I lost my virginity on prom night in a cornfield in Ohio. Wow. And that is the most American thing I've ever done. <laughs> that is the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah. What, what a way to lose yeah. it. In a cornfield. Yeah, in a cor- we had a blanket. I remember texting a friend afterwards and I was like, it didn't taste like I thought it was going to. That, that, that was my confusion. <laughs> <laughs> Harriet Rose. I'm joined by the wonderful Ray Black. I woke up to my mum listening to my music (laughs) and singing along to it. And there's one that's like, it's very explicit. And she was singing along and vibing to it. Oh, yeah. My sister in the next room, like, oh my God, I can't believe she's listening to this song. Like, this song is about sex. She waltzes into the room and she's like, there's nothing you're doing that I haven't done before. I was like, (laughs) oh my God. So we're all learning new things. Uh, There's nothing you're singing about I haven't done before. So it's fine. Oh my God. Joey Page. I'm joined by Marika Hackman, whose splendid new album, Any Human Friend, is out now. You are just explicitly honest and quite graphic in some places sexually. And do you think it might also be quite difficult when it comes to dating and stuff? Because someone can like basically (laughs) listen through all this explicit stuff. Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about that. There you go. (laughs) Great, yeah. I mean, sorry to bring that to your door. Real turn off. Yeah, yeah. Access all areas. Diane Buswell. Thank you. Strictly. Hello. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're dating Joe. He was your dance partner last year, right? Yes, he was. I always wanted to ask. Uh oh. Who put on who first? (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those things like, obviously, during the show, we were honestly so, so busy with, with learning a routine every week. And it wasn't until after the series that we were like, oh my gosh, we, we really did enjoy spending all this time together. So and um, and yeah, we ended up yeah. you know, being together. It is very, and it's cute that you've it's managed to succeed outside of the show. You're listening to Food Bar Radio. Food Bar Radio. Food Bar Radio. Food Bar Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani for Fubar Radio Politics Uncensored. This week I'm joined by Patsy Stevenson in the studio. And now we have Ian Donnelly, former police officer and author of Tango Juliet Foxtrot. How did it all go wrong for policing? Um, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've been talking today about the reputation, the trust and confidence in the police. We've had the Lewis Casey report come out, which has found that the Met is guilty of, and I quote, institutional racism, misogyny, and homophobia, that the force has a bullying culture, which is, again, quote, baked into the system, and a report has found that stop and search and uses of force uh, against black people has been used excessively. Surely policing in Britain is broken, no? Hi, Ali. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, fair, fair to say that um, policing in the UK is in a real uh, bad uh, situation for all sorts of reasons. Um, but as I made clear in, in my book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, um, everything happens in life for a reason. And uh, since 2010, uh, the police in England and Wales uh, lost uh, the best part of 30% of their resources. Uh, they lost uh, 23,000 uh, police officers. <coughs> Uh, 20,000 uh, 20, police officers, 23,000 members of police staff, 50% of police stations closed and sold off in, the, in England and Wales, 75% in London. Uh, what, in tandem with that, the, the demand on the organisation went up significantly. Some put that demand roughly at about 40% more than it was in 2010. Uh, complex crimes uh, considerably harder to <coughs> deal with now because of technology and the net result of all of that is that um, the organisation is now uh, under a great deal of stress um, police officers are uh, one in five uh, are suffering from uh, PTSD uh, it, between 2011 2019 169 police officers in England Wales killed themselves so all of this, um, I've got to say, I'm sorry to say, is a direct result of what has happened under this current government. Um, so that's my basic position. So uh, you're going to have to help me out here because I, don't, I, I, I completely recognise uh, the, the investment problems, the, the staffing issues. I struggle to see how that links into institutional racism, 
misogyny, and homophobia. The NHS has seen one of the largest declines in workforce, but you don't get reports where 12% of women in, where in, in the NHS say they've been harassed or attacked at work, but you do in the Metropolitan Police. One third saying they've experienced sexism. How, how, does, how does the pressures on the workforce equal racism, misogyny, and homophobia? No, I, I don't think it does, uh, to answer your question. Um, I think there's clearly some significant um, deep-rooted issues within the Met Police. Uh, and, and certainly I, for one, and I think most police officers that I know, and I'm very well connected nationally um, to police officers throughout the country, um, most everyone I've spoken to welcomed what was in the Louise Casey report. Um, we all broadly uh, agreed with what was in it. Um, personally, um, and this is my own personal opinion, I'm not sure the word institutional is terribly helpful um, because uh, that sort of suggests that um, root and branch and every single person in the, the, the police organisation nationally is a racist or... I don't think it suggests that though, does it? I think institutional just means that it's accepted, it's it's allowed without consequence most of the time. Yeah, well, again, um, my experience, and everybody likes to talk about their lived experience these days, don't they? But my lived experience as having been in the organisation for 30 years um, was that I didn't actually see that personally. I didn't see that level. Um, if you talk about the word institutional, that, that suggests that it is so deeply ingrained within the organisation that you couldn't couldn't help but, but see it everywhere you looked. And I didn't see that. And most of the people who I worked with over the years um, didn't see it either. So that's why um, so many police officers feel very, um, it, the use of that word institutional is, is, is actually very unhelpful. It's actually really deeply unfair to, to the vast majority of police officers up and down the country who do a good job, who do not behave badly. Yes, 100%, there are a large number of police officers in the UK who we need <coughs> to get out of the organisation as quickly as possible. And I totally give Mark Riley or the senior team at the Met my complete support in order to do that. I've made that point really, really clear in my podcast. I, I made it really clear in my book that for far too long, we have tolerated bad police officers and the systems in place in order to get rid of people are just too weak. They take far too long. And I tell a story in my book about how um, we, we had a terrible officer in one of the teams that when I was a chief inspector, we had a terrible officer in one of the teams. Where I, I made it. I made it. I made a, a project. I thought I'm going to get I'm going to get this bloke out of the organization. And I, and I gave two sergeants and I said, right, I want this bloke out of the organization. And these two sergeants got so stressed trying to manage the process around getting rid of someone that they both ended up going off sick with stress. Now, that gives you an indication of how bureaucratic the processes are to get rid of people. But this is the problem. Look, I, I, Ian, I think the problem is <coughs> since this report has come out, we've seen a lot um, of police officers, uh, senior police officers say, you know, the word institutional is unhelpful. It doesn't reflect the officers that we know. Uh, today, we've spoken about um, a chief constable in Manchester um, who has said that they don't think that the word institutional racism is is accurate. But it's not Ali Milani that's saying this. It's not Patsy Stevenson that's saying this. We've had the McPherson report in 1999. We've had multiple reports by the United Nations Human Rights Commission um, uh, around this. We've now had the Louise Casey report. If senior people like you aren't willing to admit that there is an institutional problem, that this isn't just a few bad apples, but a rotten tree. How can we ever fix this problem? It, it, it's been decades and decades we've been talking about specifically institutional racism, now sexism and misogyny as well. Surely the only way to move forward is senior people like yourselves and others to hold the hands up and say, yes, this force is institutionally racist, homophobic and misogynistic. And the only way we'll deal with it is root and branch change. Yeah, I just think like I think we just got to be really careful, Ali, with with language. Um, language that word means something to you. It, it also probably means something slightly different to Patsy, and it means something uh, different to me. To to your average person on the street, what that word means is that every person, and I get I get it, Patsy, I get it that that this isn't what it means. But the but a lot of people will interpret <coughs> that rightly or wrongly as meaning that every person in that organisation is a racist 
or is misogynistic. That's or is Ian. I'm sorry. That's not. Yeah, and that's not what it means. What it means is that the organisation uh, that for 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 decades this organisation has allowed behaviour like this to go. And I'm going to read a few a few examples. So look, the the Independent Office for Police Conduct report in 2020 revealed messages from police officers joking about hitting and raping women, killing black children. One male officer wrote to a female officer, "I would happily rape you," and also wrote, I, "If I was single, I would happily chloroform." you another male officer wrote my bird my bird won't stop taking the piss swear to god i'm going to smack her slap her one say you didn't another officer writes grab her by the pussy another officer writes you ever raped your missus this is the behavior that is going on day to day in the metropolitan police and other police forces if this isn't institutional sexism racism and misogyny what word would you have us use yeah i i i'm 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 sorry but i don't get me wrong that behaviour is appalling. I don't want to be. I didn't. Wouldn't have wanted to serve alongside people who who say things like that or think things like that. I just don't want it. Um, what I think we need to do is is we need to start to um, understand. There's this is a really complex issue. Okay, um, I think police officers um, do a unbelievably stressful job, um, and. They, there is academic studies that have shown that uh, they experience more human trauma in a typical week than most members of the public experience in their entire lives. Hence, all of the statistics around PTSD, suicide, etc. I'm not saying that that's an excuse because it's not. But what I'm saying is that we need to be really careful about demoralizing an entire organization. Now, these are men and women who are going out day after day going into some very, very difficult, dangerous situations, putting their physical and their mental health at risk when they do that. There are thousands of police officers leaving. There are police officers leaving in their droves at the moment. <coughs> many, many of the 20,000 that were recruited under the sort of the Boris uplift uh, are, are leaving um, before they've even completed their two years. Now, the net result, when you combine that with really poor pay, because Theresa May took away an awful lot of the, the pay and conditions of police officers, when you combine all of those things together, you end up with a deeply demoralised organisation um, that is no good uh, for the future because all of those detectives who investigate rapes and uh, murders and counter-terrorism and serious and organised crime, they're just not going to be there why? Because they'll have all have left very early in the service. And you don't learn those skills overnight. It takes 10, 15 years service as a detective to, to do that. So I just say we've got to be really careful here that we don't trash an organisation whose who, who's, who's mission <coughs> is to keep the public safe. And if we do that um, and we continue with this constant negativity and trashing the organisation then don't be too surprised if in five years' time we are in a real crisis around public safety in the UK. I mean, look, uh, Ian, I'll be honest, it's hard when you, you talk about trashing the organisation. If the leadership of these organ if this leadership of this organisation had dealt with this issue over the last decades, if they dealt with the McPherson report, if they dealt with the multiple interventions by the United Nations, we might not be where we are. But listen, I want to talk to you about something, um, <coughs> something else that's I I in line with this, and that's stop and search. So since this conversation began, and and the and the Casey report specifically mentions stop and search, you know we've had countless evidences again from everywhere from LSE stopwatch release house of commons reports british journal of criminology uh to name a few that stop and search not only doesn't work but it causes erosions of trust between communities and the police force what's your position on stop and search yeah it's it's a very yeah controversial issue and it's been um used as a a um you know, a reason to sort of make that continue to make that argument that police officers are are sort of systemically racist. But um, the, the reality is um, that police officers 100 percent do come into um, a disproportionate number of probably confrontational situations with, um, let's say, young black men in the inner city. Uh, Professor Larry Sherman from Cambridge University, who is the UK leading authority on evidence-based policing, established that um, uh, UK homicides, the murder rate for 
um, for black people in the UK are, are somewhere between 200 and 800% higher in the black community than they are in the white community. And in the 16 to 24 age group, uh, young black men are 24 times more likely to be victims of homicide than, than white men of the same age. And, and the reality, sadly, as we know, is that, that many of those young black men are, are killed by other young black men. So this is a really, really complex issue. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm not really sure where that fits into. Yeah, how is that like relevant? that? That's not relevant at all. I'm, I because think we're trying to talk about the institutional racism of police and not try and blame the public for crimes against each other. Yeah, I think, my, my question yeah. is specifically so, so, around stop so, and search. How does stop <coughs> and search relate to that? So if so if so if large numbers of, of, of young black men in the inner cities are, are are carrying weapons and using them on each other. What do you propose that the police do well, with that? I don't well, think listen, Child Q wasn't a, a young black man. And, and, um, the, and the problem, <laughs> listen, the problem with stop and search is that every evidence suggests that it doesn't work. The LSE stop, stop watch and uh, release report found that black Britons are 8.4 times more likely to be stopped and searched, even though that there is no discrepancy on race as it as it relates to overall crime. The House of Commons report found that there's little evidence to suggest that stop and search is an effective deterrent. Over 80% of stop and searches will no criminal justice outcome. The British Journal of Criminology has, found, uh, has said that they struggle to find any effect of stop and search. So you can quote those statistics, but it has no effect. And all it does is erode well. trust between communities and, and the police. And we have seen that it specifically targets black Britons. So one, so one, of, the, one of the things I think is really unhelpful in this um, debate about stop and search is that, is that because uh, there is a relatively small number of uh, the conversion rate of stops and search to finding something that results in an arrest is relatively small. I would 100% accept that. However, when used in an intelligence-led way, in, in a particular geography at a particular time of the day when, for example, there has been a, a recent sort of uplift of violent crime involving weapons, it is used as a tactic to suppress violence as a, as a deterrent in those in those communities. Now, I've, Has it worked? Has knife crime gone down at all? It's gone down significantly in London, yes. But I can't give you a statistic. Are you sure? I'm not actually I sure can, about that. Well, but okay. I can, I can. So, would you say the House of Commons report in 2020 that found there's little evidence to suggest that stop and search is an effective deterrent is wrong? Well, my my professional experience teaches me that it is a, a very significant deterrent to young black young not young black men young. Well, right there is the problem, men. isn't it? No, young men carrying weapons in a particular geography, if it's used in an intelligence-led way. Now, the statistics that that Professor Sherman talks about illustrate the point that inevitably police officers are going to find themselves in, in those very difficult situations. But what happens is if if they don't try and suppress violence and uh, woundings and murder, no one is saying they don't stop. They don't suppress wounding, violence, and murder. What they are suggesting is maybe it doesn't help trust between black communities and the police if they're eight point four times more likely to be stopped and searched. In a program that has clearly been shown by multiple researchers, uh, doesn't work. Doesn't lead to convictions. Doesn't work as a de de deterrent. And all it does is erode trust. Yeah. Well. At the end of the day, the stop and search legislation is there for a good reason. It's there to, to try and prevent crime and to, to, to deter people from carrying uh, weapons, uh, carrying drugs or, or <laughs> articles for committing crime. So uh, I think it'd be really interesting to see what actually happened if the police had that part taken away from them. I think I think the proof of the pudding will be would be in the eating. I, I, I sincerely hope that that's that doesn't happen, because I think there were many, many more young men would die if that did happen. Uh, knives and weapons have been taken off the street every single day in London and across the inner cities across the UK directly as a result of proactive use of that tactic. Mm, perhaps it might be a good idea to defund the police and give that funding to communities um, and use I mean, I was to stop that. Listen, I, I was going to say, as, as a young person that grew up in inner London, <coughs> I always found it was far more effective when the police came and discussed and w worked on building trust with us so that, that people voluntarily gave up this cycle of violence rather than the heavy-handed, racist, and ineffective stop-and-search program. Ian, uh, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Ian Donnelly, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Ian Donnelly is a former police officer and author of Tango, Juliet Foxtrot, How Did It All Go uh, Wrong for British Policing, and a former police officer for 30 years. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Patsy.
is that not the problem? I mean, I just what we've just heard. I mean, we've we, we've spoken <coughs> uh, a lot, and we, we're desperately running out of time. But mm. there is just a refusal by the British policing establishment to accept that they've got a problem. Do you know what? A lot of the time, it's always white men. Why is it always, it's always white men. He he says time and time again. They all say, "Oh well, I understand. I understand." However, you don't. You yeah. don't. As a woman and someone of color, yeah. you don't. And, you the pro- and, the, and look, the problem. <laughs> the problem I've always found in my experience <coughs> is whenever you talk to police officers, police officers do just want more powers because they believe it gives them yeah public you know, order bill stop and it gives them more powers, powers to, to, to stop crime. Unfortunately, the evidence suggests that it's uh, disproportionately used against black people, mm-hmm. against women, against gay people, and that is the problem that we face. We've run out of time. This the, this this show has has been so insightful. Thank you so much uh, to John Pegram for joining us. I'm from a member of Bristol Cop Watch, Dawn Butler, Labour MP for Brent Central, and Ian Donnelly, former police officer and author. And thank you so much to Patsy Stevenson for joining me this week. You can follow us on Instagram at Politics Uncensored. I'm Ali Milani, Twitter AR Milani. Thank you so much. A big Eid Mubarak to everyone listening and salams. See you next week.